0: This podcast is taken from our recent guest lecture series at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. This summer, we invited good friends, gifted teachers, and wise professors to share on a wide variety of topics that affect all believers. On today's teaching, Justin Thomas challenges our view of singleness. All right, good evening, everybody. Um, two, two clarifications. Uh, since I'm talking about singleness, one— if you're here and you're married, stay put. This message is for the church collectively. It's something I think we all need to talk about. And two, uh, what, why am I up here talking about singleness when I'm just about married for 18 years? I'm, my marriage is almost an adult uh, and it's almost crossed the threshold of my entire life worth of singleness now. Um, and the reason is because uh, a primary topic that I've focused on for about the past 10 years now is, is a Christian view of sexuality. And as I studied that, I came to understand that that topic was much harder to get right and much harder to live out if we didn't understand the unique resources Christianity brings to bear for singleness and celibacy. And so as I started to look at how the New Testament talks about these things uh, at the you know, 2000 years of Christian history and what we've learned uh, about singleness and celibacy from those times. And then looking at our world today, uh, this has become kind of a passion topic for me. And so um, tonight, what I want to do is talk about why Christianity uniquely sees the goodness of being single. And I mean uniquely on two fronts. Uh, The first is of all the Abrahamic religions, okay? So Judaism, Christianity, Islam, you can throw Mormonism in there. Only Christianity has a positive view of singleness, okay? But the second front that I want to draw your attention to is where our world, especially in the United States in 2023, is on issues of marriage and singleness. So here's a couple of statistics that you may not know. 46% 46% of Americans over 18 right now are single. And if you're a woman, it's 52% that you're likely to be single if you are over the age of 18. In 1980, the average American married at the age of 25 for men or 22 for women. Today, it's 30 and 28 Okay, So more people are single, more young adults are single longer. And then, of course, I could add to this a couple of of other pieces. We could talk about the high levels of divorce. The average American marriage lasts for eight years. And then I could add to that as well the um, sexual immorality, the cohabitation, the hookup culture, all of these things. And remember that the options that Jesus gives us is sex with inside marriage uh, as God has designed it, or celibacy. Those are the only options, okay? And so this is becoming, with every passing day, more of a significant issue for the church and for our world. And I want to show you how Jesus primarily but also the Apostle Paul talks about singleness and help us to recalibrate our mind as we think about this. And so the first thing I wanna focus on tonight is that Jesus defines human flourishing. By human flourishing, I mean when it comes to sexuality, marriage, human relationships, human life, Jesus tells us what the good life is, right? He does this in the Sermon on the Mount as he opens and he says, blessed are these people, And he describes where the good life is. Now, I want to start tonight in Matthew chapter 19. If I had one passage in the entire Bible to talk about human sexuality from, it would be this one. And the reason is because not only does Jesus get pretty deep into the issue, he talks about marriage and divorce and singleness and eunuchs, but more importantly, we see how Jesus thinks about sexuality. In other words, he provides a framework to answer our own questions. Uh, and so, uh, let's look at the opening passage here, which is actually a question from the Pharisees regarding divorce. And before we read, let me remind you that the Pharisees are not interested in Jesus' answer. This is not an honest inquiry. This is a trap, okay? Their goal is to alienate Jesus from his audience, or even better, get him to publicly disagree with Moses, which is the definition, according to Deuteronomy 18, of a false prophet, okay? So they have an agenda here. And as is often the case, they don't trap Jesus. In fact, Jesus confounds them and his disciples. And so read with me here in chapter 19, verse three. Some Pharisees came to him to test him they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, the conversation we really want to look at tonight is the one that follows this. It's the -the behind-the-scenes follow-up question from the disciples, but I do want to lay out just a couple of important pieces here. First, I want you to notice that the Pharisees ask a question about divorce, and Jesus says, no, we need to talk about marriage. And not only that, but he says, and if we're going to talk about marriage, we need to talk not about Deuteronomy 24, which is the law that they're asking their question about, what does it mean when it says, if a man has, uh, uh, if a woman uh, is, um, I'm trying to think of the word that it uses in the text, um, if a woman is unclean in the sight of her husband and he gives her a certificate of divorce, that's the passage that they're asking about. What is that uncleanness? What, what is the pr- appropriate cause? Um, but he says, we can't understand divorce unless we understand marriage. And then he says, and this is most important, we can't understand marriage unless we start at the beginning, right? He does go to the writings of Moses, but not Deuteronomy, all the way back to Genesis. In fact, notice there he looks at, uh, at at the beginning, the one who made them male and female said, and so he says, if we want to know what marriage is, we need to ask the one who made marriage. He goes back to the creator of male and female who spoke in Genesis 2.24 over Adam and Eve. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Okay, now this is a big principle. It's a bonus point for you guys tonight. If we're going to talk about sexuality as Christians, we have to start with creation. Creation gives us design. Design gives us purpose. We cannot know if something is done well unless we know what something is for. Have you ever walked into a friend's kitchen and you're looking for some sort of utensil and you find a utensil in the drawer and you don't know what it is, right? And you ask, what is this for, right? You might be able to use it for all sorts of things, but how do you know if you're using it rightly? You have to know what it was designed for. Creation tells us that marriage is designed for a purpose. And so the ethic that we draw out of that is built in that purpose. For our culture right now, sexual boundaries, sexual ethics begin with desire and then is boundaried by consent. The good sexual ethic of our world is I get what I want sexually as long as I have permission. Okay. But for us, it begins with design and is boundaried by purpose. Okay. So he starts with creation. But he also references the fall. Did you notice that? Because they say, okay, sure. Two shall become one flesh, but why did Moses allow for divorce? And he says, because of hardness of hearts, because something has gone wrong. Okay? So Jesus talks about creation, fall, and in other places, some of them we'll see tonight, he moves on to redemption and consummation. And to have an appropriate understanding of sexuality as Christians, we need all four of those categories. We begin with creation. We recognize the significant impact of the fall. We understand what Jesus has already accomplished for us in salvation. And we look forward to the ultimate fulfillment of all of our sexual desire in the consummation of all things. Okay. Now, that's not what tonight's lecture is about. But the framework is important. Okay. The, uh, an additional thing that I want to draw your attention to is this. This is Jesus' final point, he says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. One of the things that we need to understand is that when it comes to issues of sexuality, Jesus is incredibly conservative. So much so that his Jewish first century Pharisee-driven upbringing steps back and goes, Whoa, really? right? Let alone how conservative he sounds in our day and age. And that can be surprising because Jesus is tremendously compassionate and gentle with sexual sinners, with prostitutes and tax collectors, we're told that he eats. There's the woman uh, whose, whose lifestyle is so questionable that the host of the dinner thinks if Jesus was really a prophet, he wouldn't let that woman touch him. And he stands with her. There's the woman in Samaria right, who doesn't even give Jesus her life story, and he fills it in and he goes, I know that you've been married to four men, and the man that you're living with is not your husband, right? He consistently speaks with these. There's the woman caught in adultery, and what does Jesus say? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, and yet when we read Jesus on the rules of sexuality, he's incredibly rigid, so here he says there is only one appropriate grounds for divorce and remarriage and that's that the marriage has already been interfered with because of sexual infidelity. Okay. But in the Sermon on the Mount he goes further. He takes it right into your thought life. He says if you even lust after another person in your heart you have already committed adultery. So the boundary isn't have I broken my marriage? It's, it's what I do with my imagination. Okay. And and the truth is, these two things actually go together much more than we realize. Jesus comes as savior. And so he reiterates across the gospel that we are a people who need saving, we're sexual sinners. And he reiterates that he's come to save sinners such as us. Okay, so the two go together. But that rigidity is important because there is only one sexual ethic and this is true for married and unmarried people. It's what the early church called chastity, okay? Chastity means that we steward our sexuality in a way that honors God's design. And there are two ways to do that. To have sex within the confines of the permanent, exclusive, complementary relationship known as marriage, or to not have sex outside of that relationship. Both of those would be considered chaste. Both of those would be considered right. All of us are called to steward our sexuality, okay? But when he says this, what I want to draw your attention to is what happens next. Jesus says this, the Pharisees snap their fingers, their plan didn't work, they sneak off into the darkness again, and the disciples go, hey, wait a minute, Jesus, can we talk? I'm not sure I understood what you just said, and this is what they ask him. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Now, don't miss this. Jesus' disciples hear his call for sexual ethics, and they go, that sounds difficult. They say, maybe singleness would be better than being trapped in marriage, if I could paraphrase. Okay. Now, here's something that you might not understand. For the Jews, marriage is not a preferred outcome for self-affirmation and fulfillment. It is a command required of all Jewish men to be faithful to Jehovah. Okay. You have probably heard that the Pharisees had enumerated 613 commandments that all Jews were to keep to honor God. Do you know what the first one is? Be fruitful and multiply. Okay. In fact, it was not uncommon for Jewish rabbis to say, you are not truly a man until you fathered your first child. Okay? And so maturity and obedience, and we can even add blessing, was added to the marriage relationship. Go back and read Deuteronomy. How do they know they're being obedient to the law? Because they are bearing a bunch of kids. That's a sign of God's blessing. And singleness, as well as... um, as well as the inability to have kids, was seen as a curse. For that reason, most scholars believe here that the disciples are not being honest either. They're doing what we see them do often. They're testing to see if Jesus really meant what he said. They're saying, Rabbi, you just made it sound like singleness would be preferable to marriage. And we see them do this all the time. You know, they pull him aside in John chapter 6. Do you realize how offended people are by what you just said? So often, the disciples are challenged by Jesus and try and reel him back in. In every occasion, Jesus does the same thing. He doubles down. And that's what he does here. Notice what he responds. He says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. Let me paraphrase again. He goes, you got it. You're right. It'd be better to be single, but not everybody's going to be able to accept that truth. Okay. And then he does something even more profound. He illustrates with the use of eunuchs. So notice as we continue here, he says, For there are eunuchs who have been born this way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Okay, now remember what I just said about the Jewish understanding in the first century of marriage and singleness? In fact, we'll see this a little bit later. Uh, Did you know there's only one character in all the Old Testament who's called to singleness? It's Jeremiah. And he's called to singleness prophetically to live out a life that is bad, (laughs) to live out and project what's about to happen as they're captured in Babylon, and it'd be better not to have a family because you're going to watch your children die and suffer. So live a single life because everybody's going to wish they were single in a couple of years. Okay. So when Jesus says this, he's doing something brand new. I'll give you another way that I know this. According to the law of Deuteronomy, eunuchs as well as any man whose testicles were crushed by some sort of accident, are not allowed in the assembly of God's people. They can't come to church. They can't enter into the temple courts. And here, Jesus not only identifies those people, but he presents the last one. Did you notice? The last one is a eunuch by choice. For the sake of the kingdom of God, he elevates the eunuch to being an exemplary disciple. Something new is going on here. Okay. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is this language of better, right? It's better not to marry. And Jesus says, if you can accept it, it is. Paul picks up on this language in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, if you're not familiar, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks to all sorts of people. He talks to young single people he talks to betrothed or engaged people. He talks to married people. He talks to divorced people. He talks to widowed people. All the way through. It's a very broad conversation about sexual relationships in adult lives. Okay. But woven through the middle of it is Paul's personal preference and what he wishes for everyone, which is singleness. He says to young people, I wish you'd be like me. He says to engaged people, you should think about being single. He says to divorced people, you should stay single. He says to widows, you should stay single. The only people he doesn't say should think about singleness are the ones who are currently married. Okay. And notice the language he uses here. He says, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Okay, he's speaking from personal experience and he calls it good. Good. Now, I want you to notice that language, it's good to remain single, because it should trigger a cross-reference in your mind, one from Genesis 2. Right? God creates the world every day, his assessment, it is good. It is good. It is good. And then we get to day six, God creates Adam, and he says, this isn't good. Right? What does he say? It's not good that man should be alone. Okay? Oftentimes, we read that in a way that's unreconcilable with Paul's statement here, let alone Jesus' words in Matthew 19. Being unmarried is not good. Okay. Now, we'll come back to that. I just wanted to point out that Paul uses that language here, and I think he does so intentionally. But later in the chapter, he uses the language <coughs> of Jesus' disciples. So then, he who marries the virgin does right. Again, the idea here is engaged. You're engaged to a woman, and he says, you get married, that's fine. But he says, but he who does not marry her does better. Okay. Now, I have to confess, tonight I have pretty modest goals. I'm not going to try and convince you tonight that singleness is better. I will settle for singleness is good. Okay. Let's just start there. And we can work on what the New Testament says beyond that a little bit further. But that's the first point I want to make here. From the perspective of Jesus because of something new, something that wasn't true, Old Testament, because something has changed, singleness is good. And Paul affirms that as well. In fact, we can push it further. Singleness is a gift. Notice Jesus says, not everyone can accept the word, but only those to whom it has been given. Okay. Paul uses the same language in 1 Corinthians 7. This is what he says. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am. And he means single. He says, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. Okay. And so Paul and Jesus both identify singleness as a gift. Now pause. There are some who teach that the gift of singleness is one of the spiritual gifts, like the gift of tongues or the gift of teaching or administration's. And what it's defined by is a miraculous lack of need for romantic intimacy. Okay, so single people just, by the grace and gift of God, don't need marriage. And so I have talked many times with people who wish they weren't single, and they say, you can say that it's a gift, but I don't have that gift. God hasn't given me the gift of singleness. I want to be married. That is an impossible understanding of what Jesus says here in Matthew 19. Here's how I know. Because when he illustrates those whom it has been given, the gifted ones, he talks about three different categories. Notice the first one. There are eunuchs who were born that way. Okay. Now, he's actually borrowing from a Jewish concept here, what the Jews in Jesus' day called eunuchs of the sun, what we would call intersex people what we would call people with ambiguous genitalia. The Jews called them eunuchs of the sun because as soon as they were born and entered into the light of day, it was clear that a, a functioning marriage relationship was not in their future, okay? In other words, Jesus starts by those who are biologically, because of the fall, prohibited from God's design for marriage and sexuality, okay? Because they have a sexual disability, but he recognizes that there is a givenness to that. And then the second one he says, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. Now this is where the word traditionally comes from. In the ancient world, a eunuch is a prisoner of war who is brought into service of the king and castrated for that service. In fact, you probably know some biblical eunuchs. It is very, very likely that Daniel, as well as his three friends in the book of Daniel are all eunuchs, okay? Remember you didn't hear about Mrs. Daniel, okay? They were castrated for service to the king. Now, don't get this wrong. As moderns, we think the issue there is sexual promiscuity. So you castrate eunuchs to keep them out of the king's harem or out of the queen's bedroom. That's not right. You castrate eunuchs to cut them off from their legacy so that they're focused on the legacy of the king and you cut them off from security. Because in their old age, it's not their kids who will take care of them, it's the king, okay? It's about dedication to a family that's not yours. But let's just recognize that if we had to put this in modern terms, these are people who are kept from God's design because of what we would call oppression, because of the sin of others. I knew a couple for many years They'd been married for 20 years. I remember hearing very early on in my time with them that they had never spent a a night apart in their 20 years of marriage. They were amazing at serving Jesus together, and then a few years later, the marriage blew up. He had an affair. Everything fell apart. So I went to sit down with the husband and be like, what's going on? What are you doing? And he told me the truth. And the truth was they had never consummated their marriage in 20 years. And the reason was because his wife was so sexually abused as a child that she was incapable of sexual intimacy without severe PTSD, flashbacks, all of those things. Okay. I would suggest to you that eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others would include a story like that one. Okay. There's a recognition here that we are greatly impacted by other people, and Jesus highlights those as well as being outsiders for God's design. But notice the third one. He says there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, I would suggest to you, with all of the sensitivity and nuance that I can, that all of these reflect the gift of singleness. To help us get there tonight, let's change the word just slightly. Instead of talking about singleness as a gift, let's talk about it as a vocation, as a calling. Okay? Now in modern English, when we say vocation, we mean job. Biblically, when we say vocation, we mean something broader than that. Okay? Some of you are sons or daughters, that's a calling. Some of you are brothers or sisters. That's a calling. Most of you are church members. That's a calling. All of you are citizens of a particular nation. That's a calling. And you may also be a shoemaker. That's a calling, okay? Vocation biblically is the area of life that that has been given to you to serve others and God to his glory, okay? What I'm suggesting to you is for the Christian, there are two possible good vocations, marriage, and singleness. And they are both callings. In that sense, they are both gifts. They are something that sometimes we have a little bit of say in, and other times seems like it's been designated for us. But God, who is sovereign in his providence, has given us a place to serve. Okay. Now, I'm going to come back to a text later that will really help us with this, but I want to do a few other things first. Okay, I want to draw your attention again to the pivot, to the transition. The move from singleness as it's viewed in the Old Testament to singleness in the New Testament is complete transformation. Okay. In the Old Testament, again, let me reiterate, to, to remain single is to be disobedient. It is to fall short of the first command that God gives human beings to be fruitful and multiply, okay? Second, it's seen as immature. Singleness is a phase that you pass through on your way to perfection, full maturity, which assumes not just marriage, not just sexually active, but fatherhood or motherhood, okay? That's the trajectory in the Old Testament. And it's also, as I said, seen as a curse. I mentioned to you, Jeremiah, here's the calling. How do you read this calling? Then the word of the Lord came to me, you must not marry and have sons or daughters in this place, for this is what the Lord says about the sons and daughters born in this land and about the women who are their mothers and the men who are their fathers. They will die of deadly diseases They will not be mourned or buried, but will be like dung lying on the ground. They will perish by sword and famine, and their dead bodies will become food for the birds and the wild animals. Again, the only person called to singleness in the Old Testament is called to testify of an impending consequence of disobedience, a curse for not keeping the law. But in the New Testament, it's not seen as an issue of righteousness or maturity. And this is especially seen again in Paul's counsel in 1 Corinthians 7. Here's that passage we covered earlier but expanded. If anyone is worried they might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. Now, notice Paul's trying to convince the Corinthians that to get married is not a sin we might be in a different place where we need to remind ourselves that to not get married is not a sin. But he continues. He says, they should get married, but the man who settled the matter in his own mind, who's under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Now, again, we're barely going to talk about better, so let me just unpack it really quickly. Paul believes there are practical advantages to singleness, not righteousness advantages. He's made that really clear, right? It's not a sin. It's not right or wrong to decide to marry or not. He says it's, it's a non-moral conversation. But practically, he suggests there are advantages to singleness, now, one of the reasons this is difficult for us is because, as Sam Albury, a single man himself points out, we often care, convey or compare the cons of singleness to the pros of marriage. And he says that's not a fair comparison. What Paul's trying to get us to do is weigh the pros of singleness to the pros of marriage. Okay. But we also have in the New Testament a long list of positive models of men and women who serve the Lord as singles. Beyond Jesus, who I will remind you right now, and we'll return to this in a second, never married and was never sexually active. There's also Paul. Now, side note, some scholars believe that Paul was at one time married and lost his wife in his conversion to Christianity. I'll spare you the details of that case, but it's a good one. They have a good point to make. And so that it makes this even more impacting because Paul is speaking as someone who was married and may even have grounds to remarry and chooses not to. Okay. But there would also be John the Baptist, Dorcas, right? This woman who made all of the clothing for the poor. Stephen, one of the seven who was chosen to serve and then gave that incredible spirit-filled testimony to the Sanhedrin. Lydia, one of the founding members of the church in Philippi, and those are just the ones that we're 100 percent confident about. We could add many likely ones to the list, like Phoebe, for example, uh, or Timothy or others, OK. So the question we have to ask is, what's changed? Right Genesis is not a part of Scripture that we've abandoned because Jesus has come. Creation is creation. Design is design. How can Jesus step in and both say, in the beginning, that's important, and then say, but I'll tell you that singleness is a good life. And I would suggest to you that the transition is Jesus himself. Okay. Now, I want to look with you at this passage in Galatians. But before we do so, I want to help unpack again the Jewish mindset on marriage and family. Remember that the promises that were given to Abraham and to Israel through Moses and through all of the prophets always had a future orientation, right? How much of the Old Testament is looking forward to the things that God will do? I will give you a land. I will make you my people. I will send the Messiah, right? And so how, as a Jew, like Abraham, do you participate in that promise when it's future tense? Through your progeny, you have kids. With Abraham, very specifically, right? The son of promise, Isaac, that makes all of these things possible and viable because if, if Abraham is being promised a multitude of children, it has to start with the firstborn, okay? In fact, even this messianic component, since the promise that God gave Eve, every Jewish mother hoped that their son would be the promised Messiah, The Old Testament is a religion of anticipation. In fact, I would suggest to you, you can summarize the primary message of every Old Testament prophet in this phrase, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, says Isaiah, he's coming, says Ezekiel, he's coming, adds Micah. And then what does John John the Baptist get to say? He's here, he's here, okay, but also, remember again that the way that you participated in being a part of Israel and being a part of God's family was directly related to your bloodline, right? To being Jewish. So with that in mind, listen to the language here of Paul as he unpacks what's happened in Jesus Christ in Galatians. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For uh, all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Okay? Okay? So what's he saying here? Not just has Jesus come for the Jews, but also the Gentiles, and now we've been grafted into all of those promises because we are in Christ. And then a few verses later, he continues, and he says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoptions to sonship, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now notice this. For those of you who are Gentiles, he says, not only have you been adopted into Abraham's family, but God's. Okay. The be fruitful and multiply of Genesis, as we will see, serves a purpose of populating the earth. But the arrival of Jesus Christ sets up a parallel and new creation. And this one is not joined by naturalized citizens, but by the new birth. And so Jesus comes and everything changes, including the significance of marriage for God's people. Now, more on that, but let's stop and talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the 33-year-old virgin. Okay. Now, we rarely think about the impact that the incarnation of the Son of God has on sexuality, but I want you to recognize again that Jesus was fully and completely human. God in the flesh. And he lived a God-honoring and perfect life, fully orbed, completely mature, without any sexual activity. Now in our day and age, that's important to emphasize because we believe that sexual activity is required for human fullness. Your entire culture around you is built on this premise. It's what makes our views on homosexuality so offensive. It's what makes uh, Christianity and its restrictions so regressive because we stand against a premise that says two things. One, your sexual desires must be expressed or they will express themselves in unhealthy ways. This is Freud. Freud warned the world that if you are sexually repressed, you will move into unhealthy places with that repression. And so what was needed was the freedom of sexual expression so that you can be fulfilled. But Jesus was never sexually fulfilled. Okay. The second thing that our culture consistently says is that out there for each and every one of you is the one. And if you can just find the one, you will be happy. Life will have meaning. Okay. Think of the punchline of Jerry Maguire. Do you remember what it is? You complete me. What is the implication? Until I met you, I was unfinished. I wasn't fully human. I was immature. I was incomplete. And yet Jesus was tempted in all ways, yet without sin, was fully human, and lived not just a fully satisfying life, but one that perfectly Honored God, right? What does it say in John? I do all the things that please the Father. And he did so apart from sexuality and marriage. Okay. Okay. Completely human, fully in a way that we never have and won't until Jesus returns, bears the complete image of God. Okay, now again, we don't have time for this, but sexuality is all about the image of God. Genesis 1.27 and he created them male and female in his image. Genesis 128, be fruitful and multiply. Sex in terms of biological sex and sex in terms of sexuality is at the heart of how the image of God works because the image of God is about human relationships and how they reflect God's relationship in the Trinity and God's desired relationship with mankind. More on that later. Jesus fully accomplished that being completely single okay so Jesus stands as a challenge to our modern view that says sex is essential for life to be real good and valuable in fact I would suggest to you that those Christians who choose and walk faithfully a chaste life of singleness challenge one of the greatest idols of our time and demonstrate to the world that Jesus is alive Okay, so that's one thing, okay? Jesus gives us a new definition of human flourishing. But second, he provides a new frame of reference. And this one's big. I'm not going to say it's mind-blowing, but I'm going to ask you to make a pretty significant ideological pivot tonight, one that you're not used to thinking about, okay? To do so, though, I want to talk again about the words of Jesus, Let's see. I deleted my slide here, so I'm going to have to do this from memory. Just a few chapters after Matthew 19, Jesus says two things about marriage and heaven. Two things about the the consummation or the resurrection or the end of all things or the coming of the kingdom of God and heaven. And I tell you what, if you read them side by side, it looks like they don't make any sense because here's the first one. He says, For in heaven they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Right? You remember the context? This time it's the Sadducees who are testing Jesus, and they come up with this hypothetical, like uh, you know the old Cheech and Chong one, can God make a burrito so hot even he can't eat it? Right? <laughs> it's one of those problems. And they present this hypothetical, and they're trying to prove that a belief in the coming resurrection of all people is silly, because if a woman marries one man and he dies, and then marries her brother and so on, and has now seven husbands in the age to come, whose wife will she be? Jesus says, you err not knowing the power of God nor the scriptures. And then he says this, for in heaven they neither marry nor are given in marriage. But just a little bit earlier he gives a parable about the kingdom of heaven and this is what he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding. The kingdom of heaven is marriage. The kingdom of heaven is a place where no marriage is. What is Jesus trying to convey here? He's saying that the human reality of husband and wife is temporary and passing away. And he's saying the coming reality of the kingdom of God is marriage-like. Okay? Now, that first one, the future is single and thus marriage is temporary. You all know this. It's in your wedding vows. Every time we marry someone, we get them to say, till death do us part. What does that mean? It means the marriage is annulled with death. Okay. Second, and related to that, singleness is not a temporary state until the permanence of marriage, which is how we think about it. Singleness is a, a mode you pass through until you're finally married. No, marriage is a temporary blip in some people's lives. It's temporary. You start single, you end single. The future is single. In this sense, singleness as lived by Christians is prophetic. Okay. Now, not only that, but earthly marriage is a sign of the heavenly marriage to come. They're not the same, but they are related. The best place to see this is in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul talks about marriage. You know where I'm going, right? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives, submit to to your husbands as the church submits to Christ, okay? Sacrifice yourself, husbands, as Christ sacrificed himself for the church, okay? He lays this whole comparison out. He says that marriage looks like Jesus and his union with Christians. And then he pulls the ripcord. And this is how he finishes. Just like Matthew 19 He quotes Genesis 2.24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says this. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Here's what I'm saying, and here's what I think Paul is saying. Genesis 2.24 is ultimately about Jesus and the church. What Paul is saying is not, you know what's a good picture of Jesus' relationship with the church? Marriage. He's saying God designed marriage to personify something bigger, something better, something greater. Okay. What this means is we as Christians can discern the difference between the sign and the thing it signifies. I've got an illustration. Okay. Okay. Marriage, or let's call it sexual fulfillment according to God's design, is a sign. It's a picture. It's a type that God has created specifically to tell us about something else. And then there's union with Christ on the far end. That's what the sign is pointing to. Okay. Now, some of us experience the sign and will go on to experience the fulfillment. Others of us bypass, detour around the sign and still receive the fulfillment. And I'll tell you two important things. One, nobody will ever experience the sign so significantly they don't, know, they don't need the thing it signifies. Not one marriage will live up to God's ultimate design. And two, no one who misses the sign will get the fulfillment and kick themselves because they never got the sign. You guys are miles away from Disneyland. Disneyland. I don't know if it works the same when you live this close, but when I was a kid, Disneyland was a pilgrimage. And it was exciting when you got on the freeway and you saw the sign that said Disneyland next exit. But never once did my family or any other family in the history of Disneyland's existence pull off the road at that sign and go, we're here. Break out the picnic basket, we've arrived. Welcome to Disneyland. Nor do I think a single family ever pulled into the gate of Disneyland and went, oh shoot, we missed the sign, turn around, go back. That's what Paul is trying to say. This is the great mystery. Okay. What that means is we need to remember that marriage is a temporal good, not an ultimate one. Tim Keller called our view, our culture's view on marriage, apocalyptic romance. Because either you found it and therefore you happily ever aftered or you missed it and therefore your life was a tragedy. That is not the Christian view. Marriage is one of many temporal goods that is good, designed by God and a great blessing, but is not and cannot be and never must be for Christians ultimate. Listen to this paragraph from 1 Corinthians 7. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as it, were, as it were not, theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for the world in its present form is passing away. Now, Paul is not making a negative statement about marriage here. He's making a relativizing statement about marriage. He's saying, because we know what's coming... The highs of life aren't as high anymore, and the lows of life aren't as low. Okay. The goods that we experience in this life are nothing in comparison, and the suffering is not even worthy to be compared to. Right? This is Paul's perspective. And remember, here he's talking to married people. Married, in a sense, you need to live as if you were single. Like the old rock song, you need to hold on loosely. Now here's, here's that big mind-altering thing that I want to do here. Marriage looks back and singleness looks forward. God in creation designed the good reality of marriage. And so now that Jesus has come, now that the incarnation has come, we are in a place where we can still live out that good design. We can. It's still good. It's still a blessing. But it is, as Paul said in the last passage, passing away. It is a not-lasting reality, and in a sense, Jesus' arrival is the death knoll of that reality. This world is passing away, and we know that because Jesus has come. Singleness effectively lives from the future, begins now what will be true for all of us in the kingdom of God. This is why I say that Jesus has changed our reference point. And this is true about politics, side note. The kingdoms of this world, government is designed. Genesis 9, set up as part of God's design. But when King Jesus was crowned on the cross, the time of that is passing. And the kingdoms of this world are passing. And some of you vocationally will be called to serve in those kingdoms, and you should do so to the glory of God, but never mistake them for the kingdom of God. Okay. Do you see how this works here? Related. Marriage, therefore, gives us the shape of our relationship with Christ, but singleness and singleness alone shows its sufficiency. Marriage tells us what the relationship between Christ and the church looks like, the intimacy and the union and the fellowship and the satisfaction and the joy. The kingdom of heaven is like a wedding. The marriage supper of the Lord has come. Rejoice, John says when it arrives in Revelation But singleness, and singleness right now, shows the sufficiency of that relationship. Okay, this is Barry Danilik. He's one of the authors I would recommend. His book, Redeeming Singleness, is very helpful. He says, all the blessings of the new covenant come to us through Christ. He is the sufficient source. All other material blessings of creation whether blessings of food or clothing or shelter, monetary provision, healthy bodies, marriage, family, and even life itself, all these utterly pale in comparison to the blessings that God has given us in Christ. These blessings include our full and complete reconciliation to God himself and our glorious inheritance as members of his eternal kingdom. Nothing, and I mean nothing, can remotely compare with the glory and weight of these new covenant blessings to suggest that to be fulfilled or a complete Christian in the New Covenant requires anything more than Christ is to deny the fundamental sufficiency of Christ as the sole vehicle of covenantal blessing. Okay. To not understand the goodness of singleness is to not understand the significance of the incarnation, and it's to not understand the significance of our salvation in Christ. But that's not all. One last point here. This truth that you can now root human flourishing in the future instead of the past is especially good news for those experiencing complications from the fall. It's especially good news for the eunuchs who were born this way and made eunuchs by men. Those who look at the hand that they were dealt and said, but I can't have that. It's especially good news for those who find themselves persistently and unchosenly attracted to the wrong sex. And so following Jesus for them means a life of celibacy. And this is exactly what Isaiah prophesied would be true of the eunuchs. Remember what I told you? Eunuchs in Deuteronomy excluded from God's people. But listen to this passage in Isaiah 56. 56, ring a bell. Three chapters after Isaiah 53. Right. Let the foreigner who is bound to the Lord say the Lord will surely exclude me from his people and let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree for this is what the Lord says to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths who chooses what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever And let me let you in on a secret. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8? Right? Philip has this miraculous calling to go into the wilderness. He comes along a chariot. The Ethiopian eunuch is reading what? Isaiah. Isaiah. And what does he want to know? He wants to know if the person he's reading about in Isaiah 53 is the prophet or someone else. Why is he so interested in this man? Because he just returned from Jerusalem where he's excluded from the temple. And so what is the question he asks after, after... Philip preaches Jesus to him. What would prohibit me from being baptized? He wants to know, is there a place for me in God's kingdom? And Philip says, yes, because Jesus has come. Okay. The church is a place that embraces those so impacted by the fall that all of their fulfillment is future tense and says, you can wait with us because we're waiting too. But there's one last point, okay? New perspective from Jesus, new way to flourish as human beings, and then finally, Jesus establishes a new community. Listen to this passage here. This is from Mark chapter 10. truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and field, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now notice how surprising this is. Jesus doesn't say, anyone who leaves things for me now will one day have something good. He does say that. In, in the next age, eternal life. But he says, those who leave now will have in this world a hundredfold of what they left. Jesus is promising here a new community. Now, forgive me for this, but Jesus didn't focus on the family. In fact, as much as James Dobson and friends have done for the American uh, experience of Christianity, they never could have made Jesus their poster child. Never once can you catch Jesus saying positive things about the family. He says a lot of negative things. For example... Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That one's not so hard. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Look at this one from Matthew chapter 8. Another disciple said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And then most importantly, what about Jesus' own family? What about his mother and brothers? While Jesus was still talking in the crowd, his mother and his brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who's my mother? And who are my brothers? And then pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, like I said earlier about Paul, Jesus is not actually making negative statements about the family. In fact, he upholds the command to honor father and mother. He is making relativizing statements about the family in comparison to a new family. In the same way he says, if the choice is between me and mom, you have to choose me to be a disciple. He says there is a new community that takes priority in the Christian's life as being the definitive one they find as family. Now, before we press in any further, I wanna make a very obvious point here. Just on what we've seen already, The call to singleness must not be a call to isolation. Remember that it is not good for man to be alone? Adam's real problem in the garden is not that he doesn't have a wife, it's that he doesn't have a community. Eve is not the solution to that because the story doesn't end there, does it? She is the means to that because only through Adam and Eve can they be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so, that it is not good is still true. You as a human being, married or single, need relationship. In fact, you need intimacy, and I'll add to this, you need affectionate touch. Science has demonstrated it fully, but we live in a culture that has taken intimacy and made it a graded scale, and over here is romantic and sexual intimacy, and if you fall short of that, you've never really known intimacy. That is such nonsense. Okay, what makes marriage intimacy unique is not its degree, but its kind. It's one flesh intimacy. But there is an intimacy of brotherhood. Remember what David says about Jonathan? Greater love I have for you than any woman, including his wife. Okay. What about a nursing mother who's literally nourishing their child with her own body? Is that intimacy? But the problem is, all of those things have fallen away both because we don't prefer them and because everything's broken. And so we're intimacy starved. And when we try and just fill that with sexuality, we stay starved, so we keep eating. You need a whole community to be a whole human being. Okay? And so singleness is not a call to move out into the wilderness, just me and Jesus. It is a call to join the new humanity known as the church. Okay? What that means is... For singleness to be the good that Jesus and Paul says it is, the church must be the church. It must be, okay? Listen to this again. Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, childrens, and fields. Jesus promises those who lose to follow him a blessing. Think again of the same-sex attracted person who wakes up in bed next to their romantic partner and realizes they need to follow Jesus, and they leave that behind. He promises that person a blessing. You are that blessing. Okay. What I'm suggesting to you is, if the church is the church, then marriage becomes optional. Optional for our youth group kids who are trying to figure out the best way to follow Jesus and go, well, I might get married, but I don't know. Optional to the recently widowed going, what do I do with my life now? Optional to the divorced who is wondering if remarriage is an option and is looking at the restrictive view that Christianity gives on that and and saying, but is it worth it? Can I really go on without having another spouse? If the church is the church, then marriage is optional, okay? What does this look like when it happens? First, households, your private family homes, your nuclear families are hospitable and porous. My buddy James has an amazing mission uh, to Islamic people in Seattle. But when I first met him, he was telling me about his family demographics, as you do in a first conversation. And he's like, I've got my 8-year-old, I've got my 10-year-old, and then I've got my 17-year-old. And I said, wait a minute. You're like 25. How do you have a 17-year-old? And he's like, well, you know, Beth was in foster care, and we were taking care of her. And right before her 18th birthday, we adopted her. And you know how you say dumb things without thinking? I said, why? She, she was about to age out, she was gonna be an adult. Why did you adopt her? And he smiled and he gave me the best and most Christianly pure line. He said, she didn't need parents, but she does need a family. And I went, oh, that is true of all single people, okay? Alright, uh, So families are porous. It means that you give a house key. It means that you take on vacation. It means that you make godparents out of the single people in your life, okay? It means young singles, divorced, and widows see marriage as optional, like I mentioned. It means single people are not seen as second class in the church. They're not treated as projects. Guys, as a church, we've got to stop asking, when are you going to settle down? We've got to ask, start, stop treating people like if they're single, the one thing that God wants to do in their life is find them a godly spouse. Okay. And also, we need to stop siloing them into singles ministry. Okay. They need the full every member ministry like the rest of us do. And the truth is, you married people, you need single people and not just to babysit your kids. You need them because of the unique gifts and perspectives they bring that God has given them uniquely in their calling. Who are you to say to any part of the body, I have no need of you? Also, when this happens well, eunuchs in all the categories that Jesus mentions are embraced as they await the setting right of what has gone wrong in their life. Okay? So, to summarize, Jesus, in his own incarnational existence, demonstrates that sex is not required for a fulfilling and meaningful life. I feel like I should repeat that three more times. It is so hard to believe that's true in a culture like ours. Okay. Second, Jesus offers us the true relationship that marriage was merely designed to point to. And some of that is available right now and all of it will one day be the reality and it will eclipse the sign. And then finally, Jesus formed a new community of belonging and intimacy for all who follow him, married and single for joining us for today's episode. We look forward to more opportunities to share great teachings and conversations with special guests at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. Don't forget to subscribe for more great biblical teaching and visit cccm.com to find out how you can be part of these conversations in person.